Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, the podcast where we speak to the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim. And this week, we're talking to author and critic John Day about Philip Roth, the grand American writer of Portnoy's Complaint and American Pastoral, and indeed 29 other books over a 50-year-long career, is the subject of two new large biographies, as well as another writer's account of their friendship. All these books reveal Roth to be obsessed with the exceptional, and much of his life he was, but that ruthless quest also came at a cost. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start with Blake Bailey, the official biographer, the tome, the 800-page tome, which I sent along to you, and the epigraph, which perhaps unusually is taken from Philip Roth's mouth himself, and it's, it's uh, I don't want you to rehabilitate me, just make me interesting. Um, we'll come on to rehabilitation later and what what that actually means. But there is the bigger question, I think, of whether an author's life should indeed be interesting. Yeah, I, I, when I read that, I thought of David Foster Wallace's quip about literary biography being almost doomed to failure for the simple reason that the lives of most authors consists of them, you know, slowly getting up and sitting in front of their typewriters for nine hours a day and then going back to bed, which probably accurately describes, you know, 90% of 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 20th century authors and certainly Foster Wallace, although there were um, amazing sort of dramas in his life too, to some extent. But Roth was so self-consciously a big writer that I think he he kind of assumed that everyone was was the same as him in that regard. And yet his life is, as Bailey's biography shows and all the biographies show, and the fact that so many biographies have been written about him within the sort of three years of, or although Bailey started, I think, a, a few years before his death and certainly Roth collaborated on, with him on it. Um, that you know the sense that this is perhaps the last twentieth century literary life that will be commemorated with such a flurry of big traditional literary biographies, I thought was an interesting possibility and one that Roth was certainly aware of by the end of his life. I, I would have thought. Yeah, I can't. I can't really imagine eight hundred pages about Anne Tyler, um, <laughs> even though I think in many ways she's a, a as good, if not a greater novelist. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so much of this is about the drift between the interest of the work and the interest of the life. And 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 Bailey found himself a wonderful subject in Roth for that reason. You know, a, a biographer wants a, the work to be, um, 
or rather the life to be as interesting, if not more interesting than, than the work. And in the case of Roth, that's certainly the case. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I saw Hermione Lee has just been appointed the biography of um, Anita Bruckner. And I, I wonder, you know, how, if she'll be able to do another 900 pager um, as she did for Stoppard recently on, on that. And I wonder if there's a sort of question about what literary biography is for and, and what it what it means as a genre in, in the contemporary moment when in fiction, in, in particular, the dominant sort of literary mode, I suppose, of our time is is so confessional, is, is auto, you know, the rise of auto fiction, in a, in a sense, anticipating some of the questions that that biography as a form has 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 traditionally been focused on. And I wonder where that leaves biographers um, exhausted, perhaps. But actually, in the case of, of Bailey's biography, he has managed to tease out um, lots of interesting things that even super fans of Roth won't have gleaned from his his own novels, I think. We've got to explain to people who may be not that familiar with Roth that, you know, he started in, what, 1959 with um, Goodbye Columbus, which is his novella and some short stories, and immediately became famous in his 20s. And, and pretty much over the next 40, 50 years was um, a mainstay of American fiction. Yeah, and he was, a you know, a news phenomenon, too, in a way that, again, is fairly... is, is, is declining in the Anglo-American literary world anyway. I mean, I suppose he's comparable to... The way in which Martin Amis and, and the other big men of 80s English letters would have been asked for their opinion on anything in the news. And Roth found fame, as you say, very, very early and very young. And he also found infamy very young, um, not just um, Goodbye Columbus, but his his most scandalous novel, Portnoy's Complaint, which was published a decade later in, in 1969 and, um, and, and was, you know, both loved and, and condemned, especially by um, prominent members of the Jewish community um, who thought it was potentially an anti-Semitic text. It's a story about a, a, a guy obsessed with masturbation and describes his, his, his wanking in great detail. There's a great detail in the biography, uh, Blake Bailey's biography, when it says that Roth could never again go to a butcher and order liver. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. And he also got sick of people asking him if he was eating liver when, he, when when the public would see him out in restaurants. They, you know, they 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 make a joke of the fact that he might have ordered liver because of this famous scene in the novel where, um, which was ripped off by the makers of American Pie, I suppose, where Portnoy uses a piece of liver to liver to try and replicate um, the feeling of a of a of a woman and yeah, wanks with his family's dinner. <laughs> yes, that's, that, that, that is that is what happens. I reread the book over Christmas, actually, just to see. I mean, there was a famous critic who said that, that the worst thing you can do with Portnoy's complaint is read it twice. Um, <laughs> and uh, but the second time I'm reading it, I was still astonished by how transgressive it it is as a book, even now. What what is it? You know, more than nearly fifty years later, really. It is striking, isn't it? I, I read it a couple of times a few years ago. I, I used to teach it on a course on literature and psychiatry in the 20th century and it was still it felt very it felt very you know pleasingly shocking every time I read it and the students certainly re responded to it as such partly I think because by then Roth's fame had slightly retreated especially on this side of the pond and and, and I don't think he is read very much by students today in quite the same urgent way that he would have been in the certainly in the 60s and 70s and then again in the in the late flowering and in, in near the end of his career when he wrote some extraordinary novels and, and again was a kind of world famous I mean he was always newsworthy but um the fiction went through a period of relative neglect I think in the in the 80s and, and 90s and 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 that's my sense now that that students don't really when they have heard of him have only heard of him as a, a you know a serial 
adulterer and a person who perhaps treated women rather badly, especially near, near the end of his life, or certainly became out of step with prevailing morals. And, 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 um, and he is more known for his behaviour than for his fiction by many of the students I, I taught, which made, again, Bailey's biography an interesting um, way of reassessing, I suppose, what I knew about his, his work as well as his life. I suppose that takes us on to the rehabilitation point, because the very fact that Roth mentions it, it um, acknowledges perhaps some suppressed sense of guilt for the way he treated women um, in his life. And the, the, the drama of the, of the biographies really are in the, the two marriages, the first in the 60s to a slightly older woman, Margaret Martinson, and then later the actress Claire Bloom. And the, the strange thing is, is that he wrote about these relationships very uh, a number of times in, in his own work. Um, and how does that compare with how we, we regard them, in, you know, when we get the facts in the biography? As well? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because, of course, so he was more than most novelists, probably. His, his work was, the life was almost treated by him as source material for the work, you know, the encounters he had. Not not necessarily that he would have, not not in a sort of scurrilous and journalistic way, but simply that he thought of fiction as natural to him as, as breathing and, and believed in it perhaps more than he wasn't at all cynical about it. And also he didn't view it as a moral endeavour. You know, li li literature for him was stood outside of moral decisions and, and um, behaviours. And so he could see, I think, and reflect on the way in which his reputation and certain decisions in his life would be judged by those who didn't know him and indeed those who did know him. And he was often hurt by the way in which he he as he saw it his 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 motives were misinterpreted and and i think claire bloom the publication of her memoir of their marriage leaving the doll's house was was wounding partly because he felt it misrepresented what was a much more complex psychodrama um and clearly an unhealthy one for everyone involved but i think he would also have seen it as though as those those moral questions were irrelevant to a judgment of the work and aesthetic and it's quite a perhaps quite an old-fashioned view of of literature that it can be sort of separated from the life it's lived but it's certainly one that's pertinent and he had this amazing capacity and tendency that i think all great artists do to to put his finger on the way in which perhaps the wind was blowing in that regard not as a prophet i mean he's he's he, you know he's of delillo's generation and he doesn't have the same kind of reputation as a seer of the future that that, that, that don delillo has but he certainly seemed in his, in his late trilogy, you know, the American trilogy, which he wrote um, near the end of his life, a, a series of books which explored themes which are kind of amazingly prescient of, of things like moral condemnation and what we would now call cancellation in the human stain, where, which tells the story of a professor who makes a clum clumsy remark in a seminar, which is then used to, to expose a relationship he has with a, with, a, with a young, uneducated woman and is used to, to condemn him, you know, and, and socially and professionally. And morally, and and so, Bloom uh, Roth was constantly um, thinking about the implications of judging a life and judging an uh, judging an artwork in, in in terms of a moral code that was flexible and changing, and I think he would have been certainly appalled by the the way you know the contemporary discourse around cancel culture, but he was also interested in it as a phenomenon to explore in literature, and he and he did so in in the Human Stain, um, and I think those late novels really show the power he had to, 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 to anticipate things that are huge issues in contemporary society. I, I reread The Plot Against America when I was writing about the biography and it struck me 
both what an amazingly persuasive and sensitive and terrifying account of the rise of anti-Semitism and how plausible it makes that um, that possibility. And, and also, of course, how it anticipated the Trump era in all sorts of other ways, the sort of tacit, the tacit encouragement of certain kinds of prejudice that, that, that then are unleashed in, 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 um, in public and, and behavioural and vicious ways is, is brilliantly done and presciently done. And, and, it, and it's a powerful novel, I think, because of that as much as anything else. Yeah, those two are really, really powerful works. I mean, The Human Stain, I found in particular, uh, it, it's, uh, it's odd, it seems to be a defence of Bill Clinton, which seems yeah. to be a rather unfashionable thing, a thing to do. But what well, I think, in a way, it also questions um, the main character's outrage at his own treatment, doesn't it? In, in a way, it punishes him for moving away from his own uh, community. You know, there's a sort of dialogue going on between mm. it's a, there's dialogue that's going on between um, the, the self righteousness of the down the, the dumbed down professor um, and whether he has actually done bad things in his life. It's it's much like a Greek tragedy, isn't it? Because he's punished for the wrong thing. That's that's crazy. yeah, that's exactly right. And also, of course, yeah, his 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 unwillingness to acknowledge his own racial identity and embrace that is is in a sense the cause of one of the causes of his of his downfall. Um, and I think that's an anxiety that that Roth had played with and thought about his whole life, but especially because of the reaction of people very close to him to his first few novels when he became this controversial figure. And it, I suppose in a sense that the afterlife of, of Portnoy's complaint, I mean, we spoke a moment ago about its reputation among contemporary readers who a far more exercise. I mean, it's a, it's a. I think that it's an interesting bellwether of changing moral perceptions. The way in which that book has been received over the past sort of fifty years, because it's initially it's it's outrage initially was caused by the fact that it it represented a nice Jewish boy doing you know scurrilous sexual acts to himself, and and it was con therefore considered anti-Semitic that it was potential fodder for for Nazis. You know, his mother asked him on its publication, Philip, are you an anti-Semite? Because, you know, prominent rabbis had condemned the book and, and he was in good standing with the, with, with, the, with the Jewish community of Newark when he wrote it. So it was a sort of surprise that as, as his peers saw it, he turned against them. And of course, that's, that's one of the least shocking things about the book nowadays when it's, it's objections to it, in, in my experience from students that I've set it for, have to do with its misogyny, have to do with the way in which um, it, it is seen to um, simplify, the, in, in which the sort of female characters become literally objectified. And, um, and it's this kind of indulgent masturbatory fantasy, according to contemporary. So, so the sort of sexual dimensions of it are now considered shocking in a way that is completely the opposite, perhaps, of what they were in, in 1969. So I think it's, as I say, an interesting index on our changing, <laughs> what we get most exercised by morally and um, and outraged by socially and in terms of cancel culture. And who gets counted as a minority? Because and as you write in, the, in your piece in 62, he was at a conference on minority writers in literature, the conscience of the minority writer in literature, along with Ralph Ellison. But then, you know, if you look at the obituaries, it's, you know, the death of the great white male. Yes. You know, like, in, of course, his career, he turned from being a minority into being this um, a, you know, representative representative of something quite different. I wonder if that's the signal of his success in a way as a writer. He just 
and other Jewish writers, I suppose, as well. You know, he, he made he made Jewish writing American. Yeah, I think I think that's really true, and 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 is the most prominent example, I suppose, of that within that period. But he also embodies a literary life now that is almost unimaginable, and and is isn't particularly reflected on, I think, by Bailey in his novel. You know, there are there's a sense in which he came. I can't remember who pointed this out, but he came just when literature had a a sort of cultural credence, but also a mass popularity, which meant you could earn, uh, you know, he, he was getting these ridiculous advances, millions of dollars in the 60s and 70s that it, for books that never earned them out. And he was read by a mass readership. And and by the end of his life, that was tailing away, you know. The, 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 he, he, so he managed to live through this period, which was sort of pre-television, but post-cinema, when the novel had a cultural cachet and a mass popular appeal that, that could sustain a superstar literary career in a way that I think is unimaginable today. Even our most prominent writers um, don't live Rothian lives anymore in, in all sorts of ways. And that's perhaps what, um, you're, what I think perhaps a reflection of what exactly what you described, that he became not a representative, not a, not a minority writer, not a, a, an individual writing about his own sexual experiences, but a sort of stand-in for masculinity and for Jewishness and for success and whiteness in a way that... I think, yeah, has perhaps has, has has made his reputation decline in this country in this moment. But I mean, there's also the inevitable thing about writers being at their lowest ebb immediately after their deaths, isn't there? So I think that's um, been in play here too. But but I think for all sorts of reasons, the the greatness of his life, and I use that term in inverted commas, is um, is called self-willed, an act of literary creation, just as much as. The novels were and so he would be very delighted that we're having this discussion about him and about the books about him i think now it, it, you're right it, it is this, you know, a sort of different world with the big advances and the celebrity culture and the um you know the, the, you know the almost fling with jackie onassis that <laughs> happens in the 60s um it's also that you know he was dedicated to literature there is a lot here about him you know spending seven or eight hours a day standing up um, like a, one of Henry James's writers standing up at the desk um, and just pounding away at, and turning around sentences and, and trying to perfect, perfect his art. But that still does seem to have left an awful lot of time on his hands for basically <laughs> having affairs. <laughs> That's it. You can still do 31 books, but if you don't have children yeah. or really a job other than <laughs> writing, like what do you do to fill your time? And then what do you write about? You write with what you you know, you end up writing about being a writer. So we have like, you know, the alter egos like Nathan Zuckerman, but I think he also creates like alternative books. Like, so, you know, Karnofsky is his version of Portnoy's Complaint within later novels written about the phenomenon of being a writer. So he yes. wrote about this phenomenon, made it his subject. You get the feeling he sort of dipped his toe into the real world for for a few, for you know, for a period. And then he'd, yeah, he'd retreat to the-, the Not just his toe, world. John. <laughs> yeah quite um and then and as you say then then it became the sort of the life became this self-sustaining once the ball was rolling that it led to the novels about the novels and 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 the and the life about the life to some extent there's that amazing description um i think it's in ghostwriter isn't it of 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 the role of the work of a writer being to sit at a, 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 a screen or not a screen initially at a typewriter i suppose and and play with a sentence and move a comma around. And, and, and that was a good day's work done, a good morning's work done once you'd decided that the sentence was no good or something. And of course, that's so opposed to 
the things he's famous for and the, the, the sort of the most interesting parts of, of, of Bailey's book, perhaps, which is the which is the relationships and which is the the and I think it's also striking how, you know, we've sort of condemned him to some extent culturally as a as an insensitive at the very least, and if at the worst, a sort of misogynist man and user of women. But he had very good relationships with many of the women who he had relationships with after they ceased to be sexual. You know, he had friendships and he was a and he was a loyal friend to those who didn't get in his bad books one way or another. So, yeah, I think that was something I found quite surprising about about Bailey's biography and, 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 and the sort of loneliness of the the final years when he, he couldn't do either of the when he couldn't have sex and he couldn't write or he, he renounced writing and he seemed content in that period but also very lonely and that was um I mean how does one end a, a literary career of that of that kind? I don't know. But he I suppose he did it like he did everything in his own way and self willed and decided. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's an extraordinary... Um the last paragraph, published paragraph that he wrote, which is um, in Nemesis, which has the, the main character, Bucky Cantor, who's yeah. later on will suffer polio, throwing a javelin, and the last word is invincible. Yeah. That was just a perfect, um, a perfect way to end things, wasn't it? And also another book, which written in that amazing creative flurry near the end of his life, which now feels so strangely prescient. I mean, looking at the first chapters of those when, when the, the parents are you know, worrying about their children touching each other in the playground and getting too close and and, and as he yeah and and I, I read that and thought gosh he he even got covid he even anticipated the social isolation of our time to some extent yeah it's interesting isn't it because it's those later books i mean you know there's there's a sense in which they're replying back to portnoy i mean there is a sense in the biography that he he says he maybe regrets writing portnoy or i don't know if he ever really does that but mm -hmm. there's a couple of bits in portnoy the mother figure worries in a paranoid way that um, her kid is going to get polio. Um, yeah. And also worries, obviously, about anti-Semitism and um, in a way that uh, Fortnite rebels against and says he doesn't want 
was it stuff your Jewish suffering up your ass or something yeah. um, up your ass um, and um, <laughs> and uh, but in a way in the plot against America he sort of takes you know his own family gives his characters his own family's name and says well what if the paranoid as I thought fantasies of my or fears of my parents were actually true well what would it actually have been like if America had turned Nazi or like what would have happened if polio had been a polio outbreak of a significant um, kind in Newark in 1944. There does seem to be this impulse in Roth where he is going against his sort of uh, uh, freewheeling, uh, rebellious streak. The, the, the good Jewish boy never quite left it. That's really interesting. It's Yeah, he sort of does it first, first as farce and then as tragedy, doesn't he, though, in, in both those cases. And, and, and I think... Um, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's... With, with, with the plot against America, it's, it's not... It's not paranoia if they are out to get you. And I wonder what shifted in his thinking about his relationship with Jewishness that enabled him to acknowledge the the rise of... I mean, it, I don't think it's just a historical phenomenon. I think it's, as you say, a, a psychological one too, an awareness of the brashness of his youth and the way in which perhaps he he didn't listen, he disregarded those um, those warnings. And it's partly to do with his encounters, I think, with with Israel too and his complicated thinking about um the question of zionism um that that, that happened between portnoy and and the plot of against, the plot against america and the visits to he made to israel and to other dissident writers in czechoslovakia and stuff which is a dimension of his life that that he never quite successful i think the um czechoslovakian stuff that he never really successfully turned into fiction it was perhaps one of the blind spots in his life he he, he confined them to the the sort of capesh novels the slightly experimental weird ones of the of the 70s that everyone agrees are fairly unsatisfying. Um, he was always in a sort of rivalrous relationship with John Updike. Mm. And that's one of the interesting thread that goes all the way through. And yet and they only met something like six times, he says, and, and Blake Bailey says in the biography, which was surprising to me. I thought, you know, I had the, the idea of them being much more friendly rivals that sort of would have a drink with each other periodically. But I think it was quite an arm's length uh, rivalry to some extent. Updike certainly seems to have been sort of threatened in some way by by Roth's reputation, and um, he wrote those sort of parody books of a Jewish writer, the Beck books in the sixties. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, which Roth, I think, says, well, you know, he should write Rabbi at Rest, uh, <laughs> parody, parody of parody of Updike's. But then they all they all get tangled up with sort of you know Updike reviews him negatively in. Um, uh, I think it's Operation Shylock. Yeah, I think it is. And weirdly, he's one of the few negative reviews that Roth forgives. And, I, you know, he, he wasn't one to, to to get over slights from or perceived slights from friends and certainly not bad reviews. He, that would be enough to, to condemn someone um, in his eyes. And, and, and Updike stands aside from that because they, you know, they were they were friendly after that that moment. There, there's, I can't remember quite the phrase he he used to describe Roth after his death as this sort of thoroughbred stallion galloping alongside him his whole career. Like, what are the odds, Roth seemed to imply, that a man of equal literary vigour could exist in the same historical period as, as me? He, he certainly he viewed it as a, as a parallel, you know, almost as a sporting competition, as though it's like, you know, Nadal and Federer. What are the odds that two of the greatest tennis players of, of all time would exist in the same historical moment.
So I think it's Updike 73 books, Roth 31 books, neither won the Nobel, but you know, so between them 100, 100 books. I mean, we will, as they say, never see their like again, but is that maybe, you know, if, if Roth had written 10 fewer books, would we really be worried about? I mean, you know, would we really um, think that was much of a loss? It depends what the books were, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I'm glad they're there to be, to be argued about, aren't you? I think, I think that's the point. And, and, and I suppose you're right, that kind of a literary life. I mean, you said earlier, you know, not having children and not having domestic ties, but also, of course, not having to... So many of our great novelists have to teach alongside their writing and, um, and that slows things down too. And uh, Roth did teach a bit, but more, I think, because he needed material. <laughs> it was again to refresh his stock of stories than than for any financial need, certainly. And um and I think that's not yeah, as you say, it's not really possible anymore unless you're writing a certain kind of book that perhaps we do want fewer of. Um and so yeah, it's um it's a monumental life and a monumental achievement, but one that's interesting to 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 sort of admire from afar, perhaps. Yeah, there's a sense coming towards the end of the biography that as you're reading it, it is a gripping read, it has to be said. I mean, it it, it did grip me to totally really to the end. I'm a Roth fan, but um, even though, but there was also sometimes when I felt Roth was getting in my head and it sort of slightly gave me a headache to be in his presence. Um, do you know what I mean? There's, he's very charismatic, but he's also just relentless just as a person and um, sometimes makes it very difficult to... Um, um, to like him, even though you, you still admire yeah. him. He feels very out of time by the end. I mean, I don't think anyone could be in sympathy with some of the comments he makes about his relationships with his students and, and other younger women at the end of, of, of the biography and the way in which Bailey reports them is faithful. And Roth knew that. And, you know, he wasn't... Um, and he often, he he had positive relationships with younger women or or, or rather relationships that, that, that younger women had with him that they felt were positive. So I'm not trying to say that it was always... Um, that they, these were kind of inevitably abusive or, or but I think inevitably the power dynamics at play there made it made it in from, from our perspective made him a, he, a difficult man to sympathize with perhaps although there are these moments of real pathos at the end of the life when he clearly wants more from some of his relationships than some of the the people Bailey's changed uh, many of the names um which Nadal, Nadal hasn't and um but there, there, you know, there, there are, there are some sad stories there too, and stories where you think, okay, he, this was, a, this was a sort of naive man being, wanting more from a relationship than the women he was with were, were willing to give him, and and um, and there's this awful, awful story, you know, the, a moment when he tries to take Nicole Kidman out for a date, which, and she sort of turns up in jeans, having forgotten the day, and doesn't take him particularly seriously, and he's come in as limousine to court her in a formal way, as he thinks, and he's, so you can sort of imagine him, thinking he's still the great. Um, wooer of the 60s and 70s and and that's there's a kind of patheticness to that which I think is revealing and of course Roth knew that would happen and didn't censor it because it's part of the life. It's yeah it reminds me a bit of Philip uh, French's biography of V.S. Naipaul which is you know this devastating portrayal in many ways of a man's faults but then you realize that this is the authorized biography <laughs> that, that we are learning this because Roth has told um, the biographer a lot of these stories, and um, uh, although the biographer, as you, as you say, Blake Bailey, he's he, you know he doesn't go in for the kill. He allows the evidence to be assembled, and um, 
he doesn't condemn in, in, you know, in a way that Roth would, wouldn't have liked. Mm. But certainly Roth is condemned out of his own mouth for a lot of the time. And, and maybe that's how he, how he wanted to be taken, all in all, perhaps. Yeah, I certainly, well, don't rehabilitate me. You know, I think that's, um, that's kind of what he meant. But he also meant don't overinterpret, perhaps. And, and, and if there's a criticism I would make of, of, of Blake Bailey's biography, which, as you say, is this kind of very, very readable and very scrupulous and, and perhaps too even-handed account of the life, it's that he, he doesn't allow himself to speculate much about the fiction. Like, there's, there's, um, there's you know, it doesn't really, he doesn't really read the novels as literature in a way that seems to illuminate the life to me. And, and that's perhaps part, and, 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 and Roth didn't have a great deal of time for, you know, he wasn't, a, unlike Updike, he wasn't a, a, a very productive literary critic and didn't seem to have much truck for the kind of artful reviewery that, that, that many of the novelists of his generation saw as part of the job to some extent. He, he stopped writing reviews quite, quite early on and I don't think was particularly good at the straight book review. Um, he wrote, you know, brilliant essays and non-fiction too, but, but reviewery wasn't part of it. And so perhaps that's, that's, that blind spot is created by Roth's own relationship with his fiction and the fact that it all was, all was born of a life anyway. You know, what need for interpretation if the novels are the interpretation? And the novels are there to be returned to and, um, and looked at. John, thanks so much. A pleasure. Nice to talk to you. And that's all from us. Thanks very much for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. You can read John's essay on the life of Philip Roth in our latest issue, which is now out on the newsstands and on our website. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next week. <laughs>